Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. This is a real treat. I don't know if I have the opportunity often to circle back with people that I've interviewed and, and been privileged to spend some time with over the years. and But this is one of those times that uh, that I do get to do that. And so we're going to spend some time with Dustin Bainbridge. He's the CEO and founder of Horizon Education. And Dustin, you and I circled up uh, a few years ago for a Forbes interview. And I remember when we were, when we did that interview and that discussion, I thought, this guy's going places. He had a, You were very grounded um, in your understanding of the assessment space the relationship between all the parties. And to be quite frank, I think for a lot of people, it's like reading the tax code. So you <laughs> occupy a very, very uh, important seat uh, when it comes to education, the way in which we think about the transition from K-12 to higher ed, the impacts, you know, the data, the information that we want to be able to assess and uh, the level of importance those data sets have on young people and then how to support those young people with our educators. So with that as the very extended uh, preamble to this conversation, Catch me up, catch the audience up on sort of then and now, and feel free to give some updates, sort of how you have grown as a company, but maybe even more importantly, put your analyst hat on and what has changed since we last talked in the industry and in this space that you think is of note for the audience. Well, always a pleasure, Dr. Rod. It's, uh, it was an honor to be able to kind of uh, do that write-up in Forbes with you and the exciting kind of movement. I mean, we've gone through this evolution of testing over the past really, gosh, decade, but really hyper-focusing on the last couple of years because we've seen, you know, what a pandemic can do to the the lack of assessing kids. And you're absolutely right. I think that there's this really deep obsession around assessment that I have that's kind of sickening, but I still kind of go with it and try to understand everything as we as we move along. Um, but as far as as the movement, one of the things that I, I've really kind of gravitated towards is understanding um, the entire K-12 model as it relates to really formative assessment, summative assessment, um, learning, as we call it, um, and, and really trying to, to understand how students are supported. Because as, as kids are, uh, have come out of this pandemic, obviously, including my own children, have had some of, some of this quote-unquote learning loss. As we look at, you know, what happens when students are, are forced to learn via Zoom and, and what quality of education, depending on the, the instructor or the curriculum, uh, that it, that has been available, and one of the things that we we started to see is is kind of that that gap, which is how do we understand the gap? You know, we lot, we talk about closing the opportunity gap or the educational gap, but how do we understand it? And a lot of these tools in K through eight around formative assessments can really. Uh, capture a student's learning uh, lifetime. And it allows teachers to really focus on um, where students are are at, where they're trending, um, to be able to really uh, react from a proactive landscape. And so that that was really the excitement as I started seeing through K through eight tools. But then I started seeing this weird shift. And the shift is we're in this weird kind of space right now. Uh, my background has been uh, in, in focused on test preparation, uh, formative assessment design and learning, curriculum uh, design. And I started seeing that in in, uh, grades K through eight, there are a plethora of formative assessment tools in the market, which are are great. I mean, there's a lot of teachers utilizing these online in person, obviously now being more online. And everything is so instructionally driven. 
because we have standards that we have to teach to. We want to make sure that we maximize our exposure to these standards so we can become proficient at these standards and so forth. And then we get to high school and we look at where are some of those um, instructional gaps, not so much um, from the teachers end, but the tools that are available. I mean, if we look at the, the total addressable market in grade, grades uh, K through eight, you know, and, and, and we'll total from the United States Public Education, almost 51 million students, um, you know, about 15 million of those are in secondary high schools, and the remainder of those are K through eight. So obviously, you see the markets pushing for where most of these products are. So there's there was this gap, and then what happened was a lot of these instructional tools became kind of not obsolete, but weirded out because the College Board and ACT, um, College Board and ACT have really created a, a different dynamic um, um, in. Um, secondary schools, which I'll talk about a little bit around how they've really captured that summative testing market. But uh, overall, been really spending a lot of time focusing on what tools are available as schools are, are kind of getting back into these grooves. Are there any, can we, can we glean anything from that assessment on your end with regards to gaps and how we're filling those gaps? And, and I would also add to that, have you seen over the years since we last chatted, a, maybe a change or a different tone and tenor of the questions that you get from per, uh, prospective groups that want to work with Horizon, meaning that we have a more, we have a, our, our base of understanding uh, has grown, our knowledge set has grown, and it's not so much the tax code anymore. We have a much better handle on it and how we can, you know, sort of like personalized learning, right? Are we getting so granular that you're getting better, more informed questions from those that potentially want to engage Horizon? Absolutely. So it's it's the state-by-state uh, state dynamic. So one of the things that uh, as, as an educator sitting in their classroom is that many of them may know or are figuring out as they walk through this um, college board and ACT is we start, you know, you turn open the, uh, the LA Times, the New York Times and seeing what's happening in California as kind of this kind of evolution of this test optional society or this test uh, test blind society. And what happens there is in college admissions is, is giving the perception in one area that uh, the test isn't important anymore, meaning the SAT or ACT. And in some aspects, depending on which school you go to and where you're at in terms of the, the cycle of merit or financial aid, uh, it may or may not be as important to the next student. However, um, at the state level, uh, it's becoming more important now than ever. And so there are roughly 30 U.S. states that utilize the SAT or ACT as the summative test. It is the single most important test in high schools within these particular 30 states uh, that, that tie it to accountability. And what that means is the state is contracted with either College Board or ACT um, to purchase and have uh, all juniors cascaded all the way down, depending on what state, 10th and 9th grade, uh, to take these assessments. And it's part of accountability. And so the things that I've learned as far as as we're going into this is what's happening in K-8 through is very driven on standards-based aligned instruction. Super important. Um, the most important thing. And that's, that carries over into high school as well. But if we're planning to have an instructionally designed conversations around standards, and then we're being measured, meaning my children and your children moving forward are being measured on a norm-based assessment, that's where the biggest gap right now is happening as we kind of jump from, you know, 
how are we preparing for these standards? And now in high school, we're being assessed on a test that's basically comparing my child to your child. And the standards are very uh, surface layer. Um, and so that's where we're spending a lot of time focusing on how are we able to not, not tie the two perhaps together, but almost crosswalk between the two so that educators can have meaningful discussions around, okay, I'm being measured on one thing, but I'm also expected to do something on another thing. So look, I'll, I'll speak for myself, but I don't think I'm I'm alone in saying this, but historically, education has struggled from a K to eight, high school, higher ed, and sort of creating the linkage, right? And figuring out how to connect the dots so there's a through point, right? Or a through line as to what we're looking at. And, you know, we've seen it then manifest in portfolios and ways in which we can document and track learning and even support teachers as they, they uh, you know, as they work sort of through and around different districts in the state, you know, their given state. Am I hearing from you that we are still, look, we're not there, but we're we're needing maybe to get to a point where we have much more synergy between K-8 and high school in the connection to higher ed so that we are understanding what we're trying to assess based on the standards that we've put forth and how that then impacts these young people as they go, they matriculate through the system. I mean, are we still, I'll be positive here. It, there's an opportunity to get better at this. No, absolutely. I think that there's an opportunity. I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, as we saw through the pandemic, just outside of education, uh, putting more onus on the states, we become kind of this, I wouldn't say disconnected, but we become creating decisions in different silos. And, you know, what one state is doing, another state might be doing something completely different. And so what happens is just we we are moving towards um, creating a, how would I say, from the outside, a less test-centric culture, um, but on the back end, we're seeing that there's still disjointed efforts um, at the at the between the middle and the high school level uh, in terms of if kids are getting prepared to go to college. I mean, I'm in Tennessee. That's where, where I reside. And one of the most notable things that we see every year from the state of Tennessee is um, they are so proud uh, of how many kids uh, take the ACT because regardless if they go to college or not, we want to make sure as they walk out of the classroom that they're if they want to go that they have access to being able to go. So it's very very uh, important. And so these the, when you think about it, as you go towards more of the west side of things, from California where I came from, it's very uh, you know a test uh, you know against testing uh, you know UC system pushing out the SAT, the Cal State University system pushing out the SAT. But as you go towards the Midwest and the East Coast. The SAT, it becomes the most important tool. And the problem is we're creating this state-by-state dynamic where some kids are going to have perhaps more opportunities than others if they want to go out of state or even stay in state. Um, But there's still a long way to go in terms of creating more of a synergistic dynamic. But what we need to figure out is communication between universities and states and how what that's going to look like um, to give to give more confidence to to parents and educators as we move through this because I think that's been the big, biggest challenge is just we're we're moving towards something it's just communication's been very bleak along the way yeah and some of that in the higher ed spaces if you don't have to take those assessments isn't there I, I feel like people have had conversations at bus stops about whether or not their kids need to be assessed and what goes into a college application and. Not that it's a bait and switch, but that if you don't take it, what does that mean for, you know, funding? Can you shed some light on that? Absolutely. Um, and I think it's it's been the biggest challenge, you know, 
with College Board is, you know, they were they, for example, have had to really redefine their business model on the on the SAT side because, you know, for example, states like Tennessee where I live, and when the shutdown came, um, there were fewer schools and opportunities that were shut down in Tennessee versus California. It's the way that the states are run. It's the way that the COVID rates, the density of population, all these things that came into it, so it created this inequitable. A landscape of which kids could have tests under their on their transcript, which kids couldn't or could, um, and so uh, what has happened is the communication across the entire U.S. has been bits and pieces. Those bits and pieces are they be from press, from word of mouth, um, and then from really just no information. And the reality is, we're looking at really three areas um, as we're coming out of this pandemic. One of them is this whole test optional society, which is, hey, if you want to take the test, take the test. And the reality is, just like an AP, if you're completing your advanced placement test, like if, if anything is optional in college admissions, I mean, the reality is even telling my kids, like, you should just take it. I mean, you know, to four years of your academic life in high school, you know, just to have a four-hour test under your belt, <clears throat> soon to be two when they change the test uh, parameters, that you should take it. Um, and they're not the, – the, depending on which university you want to move to uh, in terms of apply to, uh, you can you can submit it or not. Um, but the reality is let's think about it. If you have that as part of your portfolio, it's just a series, another series of data metrics that they can utilize, especially if it's optional. Um, I'm a firm believer as far as um, different types of private universities um, kind of le- using the leverage piece of if it's test optional and you don't apply for it, um, that your opportunity for specific areas of merits are probably not going to be there just because it kind of, I wouldn't say disqualifies you in a sense, but really pulls you out in certain facets of being able to qualify for certain merit-based aid based upon GPA and, and SAT scores. But here's the other thing. I have a 13-year-old daughter. And right now, I couldn't tell you in three or four years what college admissions is going to look like, what I should be parent preparing for. And it moves slow. I mean, it moves slowly in, in education. I mean, the running joke that I always like to, to, to make it is if Abraham Lincoln came back from time and we drove him around, the only thing that he see that hasn't really made it, hasn't changed a lot, would be a lot of public education because it's so slow to adapt and change. However, with the with the actual with actual COVID. It's forced public institutions to make big shifts, but we're still kind of trying to figure out where our footing is throughout all that. Um, so I, my, my suggestion on that capacity, we always tell parents, is focusing on uh, what we know now and getting as much information as you can, but be very, very, very uh, intimate with kind of some of those details because you could hear two different sides of the stories there. Dustin, let's go back to the sort of the state. Uh, it's, it kind of reminds me of the sort of the local control, you know, within districts, but from a state perspective, let's talk about digital transformation of state testing. Uh, where are we? Is this going to be a wave? I mean, how are we looking at online uh, versus paper and pencil? Yeah, so the the interesting part is um, we've, we've always been ahead of the curve, meaning certain states um, have been ahead of the curve in terms of online assessing. I, you know, after COVID, we're, we're definitely moving into this this realm of, of a complete kind of transformation. I mean, we're seeing the SAT and ACT now as, you know, a series of pilots through states like Rhode Island or Connecticut now moving to fully digital, fully online. And I think there, there, are, there are a lot more safety nets in terms of security features that we didn't have a few years ago, uh, where a lot of privatized companies have come out to that with that. Um, we're going to see, you know, the digital age provide us knock on wood using some of the ACT and SAT is kind of the entry point. 
perhaps shorter assessments um, that are more meaningful. So things that you know used to take two weeks, uh, where you do paper and pencil, and in some capacities online. Um, I think the the thing that we were trying that these big test writers are working towards uh, is shortening the cycle of results in terms of returning those results. I mean, I know I've done a lot of research on on PARC, which was a college readiness assessment, and it didn't have a lot of um, positive feedback from the customers that I talked to because when we would take these these summative tests, it would take months upon months to get back the data, even though it was you know an online assessment. In addition to that, there's been studies that have come out that looks at the the, the scoring discrepancies between a student who took a paper and pencil and a student who took it online. So we're moving towards all students being able to take shorter assessments that that can be looked at on a level playing field, meaning both took online, not one online and paper, um, but it will allow us to have um, much more meaningful summative data that can be more reactionary um, in a shorter period of time. Let's maybe this is selfish. I mean, look, my kids are younger, so there, there's a lot of time in, in between now and to your point about when they're going to be uh, applying for, for college admission. But let's talk about feedback on preparing for college as a parent of a teenager, considering all the changes in testing and college admissions. Uh, for those that feel like they just want to throw their hands up, <laughs> uh, you're so, you know, I think calm about this because this is your industry and understanding it. But whether it's just sort of a, you know, where should we feel, I guess, more anxious and or where can we feel relatively relaxed that, you know, the systems are in place, we've got a pretty good handle on this. And yes, there are some fluctuations, but it's for the better. Yeah, so great question. I think one of the things that we're all often looking towards is trying and going through with my own kids is, is finding the right fit. I think that's that's the big kind of opportunity for for parents as we get involved with this. I'm going to be speaking based solely based on my my kind of what will I be doing with my children. Obviously, the first thing that you look for is is a, is a good fit, and that can be anything from literally. There are a lot of websites now where you can look up and and see virtual tours, or if you have the opportunity to go to specific campuses and check them out. Um, you know, my wife was an admissions counselor for years at the at the university level, and even reaching out to admissions counselors to ask questions and talk to them. I mean, they're there to that's what they're there for. Um, one of the things that we often looked for is is staying close to home and in state. I think that's what's going to be a big um, demographic and cultural shift right now, especially as as, as a first generation college student um, like myself. Is I applied to a school that was literally 25 minutes from home because I thought, hey, we'll just drive back and forth to home and be close to family. And the reality is, uh, you know, for example, in California, when you when you remove uh, barriers, meaning you don't have to take these tests anymore, what happens is you get more and more kids applying to these schools. But there's only the same amount of spots in these particular sites. Um, and so you're going to see a lot more denials than you would have ever seen before. And so the encouraging part as we go through this encouraging my kids is to think, you know, if there are schools within our particular state we want to apply to, great, but where else out there? Um, there are a lot of, uh, you know, smaller liberal arts schools who have endowments that are that are larger that will allow and, and provide merit and financial-based aid more than, say, a school in, in California would provide by staying there. So I think the conversation, you know, one of the conversations we have now is just first the excitement. You know, if kids if kids do want to go to college, 
getting them familiar with with where uh, colleges kind of reside and what are some of the opportunities uh, to get in there. But most importantly, right now, we're putting more onus on on GPA, uh, you know, course rigor. Um, and then the most important thing, which is the hardest thing for kids, is to be able to write their personal statement because no one at the age of 16 is is a a masterpiece writer uh, on their self and uh, their biggest failures in life at 16 years old. Some are, but not a lot. You know, kids struggle with that a lot. Yeah, I think uh, I know quite a few adults that would struggle. We'd, we'd struggle with that as well. <laughs> uh, Dustin, let's let's talk a little a little shop here. Let's talk about the industry um, and the table that you sit at or represent. Are, are we seeing anything in, in in this world where I mean, some in in different sectors of education are seeing consolidation? I mean, we're seeing lots of investment in ed tech, just globally. Like what? Kind of take us inside in what you think is going to be happening when it comes to those that are providing uh, different elements of the of sort of the assessment, you know, space in that regard. Are we seeing bigger and bigger and bigger? I mean, sort of what's the where are the moving parts and pieces that uh, that you can talk about? Yeah, I think you know one of the things that we as an organization to to look at scale, that, that, and that's been. One of the harder things in terms of the ed tech space is, is build building for scale because we start looking at there are a lot of products on the market. There are a lot of perhaps even me too products on the market and the adoption rate is, is challenging sometimes for in schools. And one of the things that that I realized early on is there are there are some big players in the space. And then as we go back, we're in the, the data and assessment space. Is you know when I look at those big kind of players like like the power schools of the industry or the illuminate education of the industry, in terms of looking at data and assessment curriculum, um, I realize you know in terms of trying to compete with these players um, is is near impossible. But but partnering uh, with these players really allow for that true scalable opportunity. And I see a lot of a lot of these players. You know, once the the pro- once the product within their platform or partnered with their platform works, there's been a lot of acquisitions, not only from internally from then, because I know with, with organizations like PowerSchool have gone public, the, the idea right now with a lot of these big players is, is to acquire. And most of these acquisitions that I see are, are typically bolt-ons to existing platforms that they have um, that complement, because we're always looking at, in terms of the business spaces, how are we taking for example, in data and assessment, you buy a, you know, a, a what would we call a, a hollow uh, case of here's your platform. And then your goal is to fill it in with all this curriculum and content. And if I could, you know, it, back in 2008, nine, that, that data and assessment, you know, content, you, you would look at that as the eight or nine, you know, six or $7 per student. Now there are some districts because they're buying so many things that are added on to that, you know, anywhere you're driving that, 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 customer or that that the price per student up to somewhere 22 23 dollars a student in some of these districts and that's always been so if you can be one of these add-ons to these big players that's what's going to give you kind of that true scalable opportunity and trying not to reinvent the wheel and go out there and try to acquire customers which is heavily expensive um, uh, and highly expensive um, but it's something that i've seen that you know this is the kind of evolution that, you know, try focusing on getting in the classroom with the existing platforms that are there is going to help for a, a lot quicker of an opportunity in terms of getting your, your content and your, your assessments or your platform out there. So definitely not a boring sector of education. 
No, no, definitely not. I mean, if we look, I mean, look at the funding. I mean, it's, it is astronomical, the amount of money right now. I, I, and that's one of the things that I've always followed from the start is, is if you follow the, follow the money and figure out where a lot of the resources are going to. And the, the fortunate but unfortunate part is, you know, <clears throat> the U.S. government uh, likes to um, solve their, pro- provide a solution typically by just putting a bunch of money in and then, you know, we get such a short limited time to spend that money at a school district. And then we look at the results and we figure out what worked, what didn't work. But the amount of money right now and SR funding and title funding, it's, we'll never see this again in history in terms of the amount of money they need to spend. It's almost, we can't, you, you can't even give it away. It's so, there's so much. Yeah. Don't say that too loudly. <laughs> <laughs> Dustin, let, let, let's close with this. I'm always very interested in entrepreneurs and their journey. Um, take me through, look, there was the, the Dustin that I met when we, when we chatted for the Forbes article and and obviously there's been there's been growth and, and exciting sort of developments with your own company. But I'm I'm curious about you as the man, as the dad, as the entrepreneur, as the business leader. How has running an education business changed you for the better, for the uh, I won't say the the, <laughs> the worse, but uh, what have you learned about yourself throughout this process that you think would be valuable for the the next Dustin Bainbridge that's thinking about starting something to impact education? Yeah, and I broke it down to three areas. You know, I will say the hardest, I'll go through the hardest part and then the most rewarding. The hardest part really has been building something in your in your room. I mean, we came from an office. We were all there, the energy, the excitement, you know, looking somebody in the eyes and doing these things to now everyone's spread out through the United States virtually. And so these are the things to look at is returning back to an office setting is, I think, in my lifetime, will be something that's not going to be very, um, you know, for, you know, right in front of you, people wanting to do it. So being able to understand how to manage and support people virtually um, is, is a big, um, what I would share with myself in terms of my future self or whomever wants to, to, to start owning a business. Um, the second piece is, is knowing um, every, in, knowing, being the best at the craft. And what I mean by that is, Focusing on um, what areas are you trying to solve? And that was one thing early on that I've learned as a person is nobody wants to know perhaps what exactly your your product does and this day, but but what are they trying to solve? And I think that was the big thing when I would sit down with superintendents and still do is, you know, where are you at today? What problem are you trying to solve? And figuring out from a perspective, okay, if you're trying to get your subgroup population here to increase their their attendance rates or their increase their test scores here, whatever that may be, how can you help them, even whether it's your product or somebody else's product, connect them with those because it's about building those relationships. And it's it's harder now than it was before just because of the digital landscape of age, but um, being able to really um, own and understand the craft of what the ed tech space is saying, because think about it. You know, I, I had a, co- a conversation with a principal the other day who has a master's in education, and that's what it is, but also oversees a budget of, you know, millions of dollars at a large urban public school and trying to really empathize in the level of, okay, you have more money now than you've ever had, and you have to spend it, and you have to show that you're this is growing, that's growing. It's a lot of pressure and stress, so if you can sit down and understand uh, and empathize with them, understand your craft on, on how they can uh, utilize these resources. It's going to be a, a big um, uh, different differentiator in the market for yourself. So just a couple of points of feedback there in terms of being able to kind of help grow and expand a business um, more on empathy and as well as being the expert in your space. 
Yeah. And I want to dive in just a little bit deeper on that because I do think it's important. Um, and for the audience, you know, one thing that I've learned about Dustin through the years is that his ability to understand at an incredibly granular level, the nuances and the mechanisms behind each state and the funding that then ties to the services he provides is second to none. And that to me, for someone who would say, look, I want to start an education company, or I'm thinking about sort of expanding into this sector. I mean, you do that. I know you take it for granted, Dustin, but can you talk about when did it click for you that the amount of information that you can sort of download and then distill, I think is incredibly powerful because if you're speaking to someone later today from a state on the West Coast or the Northeast, you're very adept at being able to take in that information and then figure out how it applies, whether if they're sort of, if, if Horizon would be a good provider for them, but you were able to give them the language and even sort of the, the equation as to how it would work. And that to me is something that is important for, I think, people to think about as they are either in the midst of being in this sector or contemplating it. I mean, there is, there is a, there's sort of a, a rhythm to it, the approach that you take, but was there a point in time when you recognized that, or did you just find that you kind of nerded out on this information and when you heard keywords, you went, wait a minute, <laughs> this is how this aligns. Yeah, great question. So in uh, 2016, and I'll give you an example of how it really clicked, um, <clears throat> California uh, came out with a uh, college readiness block grant, which gave, you know, secondary schools, they gave 200, they dropped $200 million over the state. Each district got it based upon needs based for their, their districts. Um, and it was a three-year block grant. For example, <clears throat> some districts in the Inland Empire where I grew up got, you know, two or three million dollars that was spread over, you know, three years they were supposed to use from everything from AP testing to SAT school day to hiring college counselors. And so one of the things I started to see was in year one, about 10% was utilized. In year two, about 10% was utilized. In year three, there was 80% remaining. <laughs> And so I started to look at why aren't schools and districts spending this money? And I remember a particular district that we worked with was simply around the fact that they just didn't know at the time in terms of allocating the dollars and cents uh, for what years, for what populations. There were a lot of kids who were missing out on this opportunity for growth. And so it made me really realize that educators, um, they have a lot going on. And one of the things that's stressful especially as a, a business owner and growing your own business is um, understanding cash flow models, understanding how to allocate resources to grow, being held accountable. If I spend a dollar here in marketing, what's it going to, what's it going to produce over here? So just like the same sense, but as an educator with everything going on, how are we managing these things? And what happens is it just gets through the cycle and then it's your one. So I wanted to make certain that everybody on our team knows this as well. Anytime we engage with a customer prior to even jumping into the content that we know exactly within what state, what resources they have available, because it's all public knowledge. I mean, you can pull up if, if they pulled any SR funding, you know, if, how much money is allocated for title funding, if they have state block grant funding, how much money is available, what can they use it for, what capacity, and, and going in there prepared, not from a perspective of like, hey, we're going to tagging all these areas with this money, but, you know, do they need the product? Yes. Or is there funding for it? Yes. And helping them kind of navigate through that. Um, and, and, and that's a big, a big conversational piece on building trust right there. Um, more than just, because if you can help a principal who by the, by all means principals, I believe are the hardest working, uh, administrators at a public school, because they're doing a lot of the first, typically the first ones there and the last ones to leave, um, helping them, uh, design, 
a strategic plan around how to allocate the money. And I've done things where I've helped other companies where I'm like, hey, our product perhaps fits in certain areas here, but you really need these things over here. And it it builds that kind of credibility from there. Uh, And so just being not only to understand your craft, but understanding how to navigate that. We do a lot of stuff in understanding, you know, how the LCAP is designed and created in California and how we can, you know, structure how money is kind of flowed through there, what particular kind of areas they can spend money on all the way up to New York within New York City and how FANUS works as it relates to how you can be a contractor or non-contracting vendor. What is, you know, sole vendor letter. I mean, all these things to make certain that makes their life easier. And that's the number one thing we hear from administrators. It's like, hey, uh, it makes, you know, I, I know what you're trying to do in terms of your product. We love it, but helping me push this through and making my life easy in terms of the, the fiscal piece is is the game changer for a lot of customers. And that's why it just makes it easier. I think, uh, being obsessed with it is is a vocal point because it's it's money that's flowing through. And the last thing I will mention that's always driven me crazy is budgets are approved typically in July. You're lucky if the money comes out in August, September, and then let's just say you're gonna you know start spending those those resources in November. You have until June 30th to do so. And it's just, it's always this race on, okay, here's our budgets. We've already worked on allocating on the back end, but maybe we got more money or maybe we can get I mean, it changed here and there, but it's just, it's just a, a game in terms of almost like the master schedule of finance, but it's, <laughs> it's a game on terms of how you, how you, how you play it. So if you can be there as a supporting factor, that's, that's really the game changer for a lot of companies. Well, and I hope the audience takes away. I mean, I think it's a fantastic lesson that we can all be incredibly proficient at our, at our at our area of expertise, right? And what we offer the market, but man, I, <laughs> the, the trick might be, or sort of the magic sauce might be in really sort of stepping back about 10,000 feet, maybe 5,000 feet and really understanding the mechanisms that make the industry move because that allows you to recognize opportunity. And to your point, Dustin, build, acquire trust in the relationship of the prospects, right? Of the people that you wanna be able to collaborate and work with. And I think you do that in spades and it's probably why Horizon Education has done so well um, and continues to do so well. So keep up the great work. This is fun. I love catching up with you on this periodic basis to see an entrepreneur that continues to be obsessed with what they're doing and uh, we are all the better for it. Dustin, I wanna make sure that people can find you and find Horizon, where should they go? Uh, Horizoneducation.com. That's probably the easiest place to kind of go through where, uh, all of our content and feedback and everything from customers lives there, as well as uh, any partner related to PowerSchool or Illuminate, a lot of the data assessment providers, um, all of our resources live within their platforms as well. Dustin, keep being you. We want to thank Dustin Bainbridge as CEO and founder of Horizon Education. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.